Well, it's great to be here with you guys, and uh, it is going to be fun to be up here for the next four weeks. That's a, that's a pretty amazing opportunity and privilege, and I'm so glad, and I can't wait for you to meet Ann. Trust me, the messages will, get, will uh, change significantly when she's up here with me, and you guys might have to encourage her quite a bit when she's up here, because uh, she might be just a tad nervous about all of that. But we're really, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to do this uh, with all of you, and so I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap for where we're going. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about three myths that if we embrace them, if we have believed them or bought into them, they really impact our relationships, whether you're married or whether you're single. Either way, they deeply impact us. Next week, we're going to talk about something um, that has probably been more impactful for me personally over my journey in my own marriage of 42 years. Um, it changed my perspective, repositioned my heart towards marriage many years ago, and it opened the door up for some real life change in me. And really next week we're going to talk about why God gave us this thing called marriage in the first place. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but for me, the passions I have in life almost always follow my purpose. So when I understand why something matters, it has the power to impact my life greatly. And I hope next week, that's what happens for every one of us. We, we are invigorated by why. And then the third week, we're going to talk about the incredible need we have to walk in humility in our relationships. And we're going to take a close look at the power of repentance and forgiveness in healthy relationships, married or not. And then the last week, we're going to dive in just a little bit, or at least the last week I'll be here, the fourth week, we're going to dive into develop, developing, understanding, thinking about how do we grow in emotional intimacy in our relationships, in our marriage, or in our friendships? And then, as you heard Lloyd say the last week, he and Lindsay Castleman, Lindsay's from a counseling, our counseling center here, are going to come up and, and really put a capstone on this by taking a look at some broader issues that they'll respond to as well for that week. So I hope that you can be here for all of them. I'm, I'm really excited to do it. And, and what I hope happens when we get all done with this, and obviously we're just going to scratch the surface, but when we're done, what I hope is true, I hope you sense a, a call up, a pulling to something larger than yourself. Whether you're married or whether you're single, that you sense this calling, that relationships have the power to call us to something bigger than just our own needs, our own self. You know, I will tell you, I think if I had learned a fraction of just what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks, that I believe I would have had a different life as a single man, and that I think I'd have been far more prepared for the challenges that marriage would expose my heart to. And I really intend to say it that way, not just the things that marriage brought to me, but what marriage did is it exposed some things in me. And the truth is, that's what relationships do. They expose things in us. That's what they do. 
So I know that some of you here, I know some of you are single, I know some of you are divorced, some of you are widowed, and it can be tempting when you hear we're gonna have a, a series about marriage that maybe this would be a good time to take a vacation or do a little church shopping. I mean, I understand that that may be true. And I just, I just want to assure you, I really do, that this series, though it is going to be about marriage, the biblical principles that we're going to talk about, they're going to be just as valuable and powerful to you in any relationship in your life as they are in our marriage relationship. So how many of you, have you guys ever seen the show on Discovery Channel called Mythbusters? Do you guys ever watch that? Nah, yeah, a few of you. Well, what they basically do is they take myths and they tend to uh, look at scientific ones often. And so they'll take a myth and then they'll do a bunch of experiments and try to prove or disprove it. And it got me thinking about what I wanted to do this morning about taking a look at some myths. And, And I started to reflect on some myths I grew up with. And I bet some of you might identify. I was told that when I was a kid that if I swallowed gum, it would stay in my stomach for seven years. <laughs> By the time I was 10, I don't chew gum. I don't. My mom said it to me over and over again. And today as an adult, I don't chew it. I also remember being told that I had to wait for an hour after I ate to go swimming or I would get cramps and drowned even in my backyard. <laughs> How about this one? Lightning never strikes in the same place twice. When I was in about fifth grade, <laughs> I, my, I had a friend who stole a pack of cigarettes from his parents. So we are off in the woods in fifth grade. It's the first time I ever had a drag of a cigarette in the woods in fifth grade. Well, as we were back there, a storm came rolling in and about 50 yards away from me, a lightning bolt hit a tree. My hair stood on end, and I just, (laughs) I thought it was the voice of God because I was smoking. That's what I really thought. (laughs) But I'm telling you, I hightailed it out of there, and I saw it. Lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Who is it that stays around to verify that? (laughs) Certainly not me. Then this last one just kind of creeps me out. I had to be sure it wasn't true, that you swallow eight spiders in a year while sleeping. Aren't you glad that's not true? And, and believe it or not, it's the vibrations of our body that actually scare the spiders away. <laughs> so, you know, those myths and many other ones, they're, they're pretty harmless. But this morning, I want to take a look at three well-worn myths about marriage. And, and here's the thing. If some of us, these myths I'm going to talk about, some of us struggle to, to live as if they're not true. Like, we, we think they're true. And, and because, that, because of that, we really, it really impacts the way that we live out our relationships. So let's take a look here at myth number one. You've got those on your notes right in front of you. It's pretty, myth number one is marriage completes you. You know, this might be the most widely accepted myth in our culture about marriage. Media, movies, most of our pop culture wants us to believe that somehow romantic love completes us. It's what makes us whole. You know, when I even say that idea about being completed, I 
almost all of us probably think of a scene from the movie Jerry Maguire. You remember Tom Cruise walking in that room full of women and he looks across the room at her after having broken up. He's going to find her. He goes into a women's meeting with a bunch of divorced women and his uh, potential fiance is right across the room and he looks across the room at her and he says to her finally, you complete me. Oh man, it's just right here. It just gets you, doesn't it? it? I mean, you look at it and then she says, shut up. You had me at hello. I mean, that's what, that's what she says. She does the whole thing. <laughs> but that phrase, that moment in, in the movie, it, that, there's power in that in our culture, in our own hearts, in our own imagination, in our own mind about how we view and experience love. So the myth, what it does, this myth that marriage completes you, it multiplies pressure on the very institution of marriage itself. It forces the marriage to bear more weight for our fulfillment, our joy, our happiness than it was ever intended to have or ever can realistically do. It, It just can't. So we begin to put marriage on a pedestal. We elevate it, we covet it, we develop rose-colored glasses about married life. We replace Jesus with marriage and send ourselves into the emptiness of our perceived incompleteness. So when we're married, we can overburden our marriage with expectations. And when we're not married... It just enhances our our perception of incompleteness. So we create an unquenchable need for marriage to meet all these needs. We mistake marriage and our spouse sometimes to be our saving grace. This is what's going to make life work. If you're married this morning... I want you to admit something you've already come to believe. You already know this, that even the best marriage by itself cannot fill the void left in your soul by our deep need for a relationship with Jesus, for something more. Marriage cannot fill that empty place. So without a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Christ now and the hope of maturing love In the future, married Christians simply can put too much pressure on their marriage to fill needs that it was never intended to fill. And it leads us to this place where we, we are filled with unmet expectations and disappointments, and ultimately we become discontent. And our eyes are simply in the wrong place. But if you're single... You must see that the ultimate purpose and plan for marriage as it comes from the hand of God, if single Christians don't develop a maturing relationship with Christ, they too might put so much pressure on their own hopes and dreams of marriage that they can create unsatisfied desires and needs that can lead to painful, really painful and self-destructive choices. So you see, we are both, we are all vulnerable to this cultural myth that marriage is what's necessary to complete us. 
Philippians 4.19, and this would apply to so many things, says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So who does that text say will supply our needs? You know, we often think about that as material needs, as possessions, as, you know, all sorts of things. So I'm not sure we always see it in the realm of our relational world. But who will supply our own needs? It's God. It's our relationship with Christ. You weren't created to be completed by the love of another human being. You were created to be completed by the love of Christ. You know, that might be the most important thing you hear this morning, married or single. We weren't created to be completed by the love of another human being. So that's myth number one. Marriage completes you. So myth number two, marrying the right person is the key to a long-lasting marriage. So here's a question. Is there one right person for you? It's actually an easier, to question, easier question to answer after you get married. <laughs> because after you've made your promise, there's one right person for you. But if so, you know, how in the world, if there is one right person out there, how in the world do you find them? In this sea of humanity, how, how, how is it that that happens? How do you know it's the right person? Does online dating, does, does that help that process? Does it hinder that process? What, what does that do to helping you find the right person? What if, what if you make the wrong choice? What if they, you felt like it was the right person at the beginning, but then things changed? Your life changed, your circumstances changed, and, and we change. As a matter of fact, I would venture to guess that for most of us, if if we spend a lifetime married, we're likely going to be married to about five different people by the end of it. (laughs) I mean, that's just what happens. You know, our, our physical bodies change. Our emotional health changes. Our physical health changes. We have to move around the country. We suffer tragedies. We suffer beautiful, wonderful, joyful things. We we. We have all of these things that are unforeseen and, and despite the fact that they're unforeseen, we, we stand up at the very beginning of this thing and we look at each other and we say, I take you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health until we die. We say that to each other and we don't have any idea what in the world's gonna happen tomorrow, let alone in a whole lifetime. So you can see that the very idea of marrying the right person is really fraught with a lot of struggles. When I, I didn't become a Christian until my last year of college. So a lot of my dating life was not in the Christian worldview at all. And after I became a Christian and I got a little more familiar with the Bible, I started I began to really question some things about the Bible in relationship to how I understood dating or marriage or any of this because it became clear to me as I began to learn about the Bible that the Bible is a book written from cover to cover that only knows an arranged marriage. That is the only culture the Bible is familiar with, arranged marriages. So, Years ago, that that was really troubling to me because I thought, what in the world 
can this ancient book teach me about relationships in 21st century America? What does it have to say to me about dating and about the processes we use to find our mates? And so I began to, to study and to look into this thing. So for centuries, you know, Jewish people have pointed to one particular verse to illustrate the need to de- for love to develop and deepen after marriage. And it really is the story about Isaac and Rebekah. So in Genesis 24, 67, that's not on your handout, but Genesis 24, 67, it says that Isaac brought her into the tent of her mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So in a world of arranged marriages, it was not uncommon for each partner not to see each other at all until their actual wedding day. This was the case for Rebecca and Isaac. The only moment he could have seen her, she completely veiled herself. He'd never seen her before his wedding day. And the text says that she became his wife and he loved her. In short, the Hebrew fathers understood that love came after marriage. It was not a matter of falling in love and then marrying. That's really different than how we view life in the Western culture. But here's the principle I think that is really powerful for our world and our culture. You don't marry the one you love. You learn to love the one that you've married. You don't marry the one that you love. You learn to love the one that you're married. And I'm pretty sure if I took a poll in the room of every married person in here, that we all went to the altar, I did, believing that I loved Anne. And I did love her in whatever way I could describe that. But the truth is, I married Anne because I believed, well, one, she was really beautiful. I was highly attracted to her. And two, I thought she would make me happy and she would meet my needs. That's why I married Anne. And I didn't know much more than that. Though I believed I loved her, what became really clear to me after our wedding day is that life was going to turn into this process now. Now that I've made a promise, now that I've said for better, for worse, now that I've said till death do us part, now that I've said those things, now I'm going to learn how to love this person that I've married. And you know what? I can't imagine that's not true for any one of us in this room. And so that ancient principle is pretty powerful. So I received a letter here. This was from a couple from a marriage conference I was involved in once. And I thought this beautifully described this. It it, um, says from Tom and a couple named Tom and Teresa. Tom and I am deeply surprised to find myself writing this letter after 12 years of marriage. But the truth is the pain began after only a couple of years of our marriage. Our dating life was filled with fun, adventure, and a way of relating that was easy, far more than it was hard. I remember thinking to myself during our dating years that no one has ever had more fun, felt more at ease with another person, felt more confident that you were the one that God chose for me. I don't know what has happened to us, but life has become too heavy, too serious, too disappointing, and just too exhausting. And I expected more. It feels like we've both changed, but if I'm honest, maybe I'm the one who's changed. 
It seems like the things we enjoy doing together, we don't have time or energy to do them anymore. The truth is, I don't believe we even like each other anymore. I don't want to prolong our mistake. I don't want to spend more years tolerating each other and walking through our days emotionally numb. I'm worn out from living in isolation from each other in the same house. It seems we don't even have the energy to fight anymore. At the beginning, I was so sure that you were the right person for me. Time and pressure have changed my belief about that. She goes on. But I wonder if she fell prey, they fell prey to the myth that they found the right person. Because when we're focused on that, even as we're dating someone, even as we are a single person, we are so focused on finding the right person. What's the natural outcome of that process when our marriage becomes hard or life becomes disappointing? In in our humanness and our frailty, we can't help but think to ourselves, I've made a mistake. I missed it. I've just done the wrong thing. So that myth, when when we buy those things, there's consequences to our thinking like that. So if you're single, here's what I want to say to you. I, I want to encourage you to do all that you can to discern the important values, the character, the integrity, and the maturity of the person that you're going to marry. I I don't, in any way, shape, or form, I'm not telling you that that's not important. Of course it is. But, But the truth is, none of us can see too far past where we are. That's just the truth. And so if we're too focused that this is the right person, we get led down the wrong path. So the key is not to find the right person nearly so much as it is for you to become the person that God wants you to be. And tell me, is that true in marriage and outside of marriage? That the real goal isn't to find the right person, it's to become the right person. And the more that you know what you know, the more you know about what you believe about Jesus, the more you surrender to the leadership of Jesus in your own life, the more familiar you become with things like humility, joy, forgiveness, service, laughter, gentleness, kindness, all of those fruits we, we embrace as believers. The better, the more you develop that in your own heart, mind, and life, the better prepared you are to recognize it in others. You know, I've raised four daughters and they're all married and we tried so hard to begin even in their teen years to push them away from worrying so much about who they would marry. Not that that wasn't, I mean, the discernment process matters. I don't mean to say that at all. But we tried so hard to say, get focused on who you are. Who you become will give you wisdom about what you see in others. It's so valuable to turn away, turn that myth upside down. So here's the point. Our challenge isn't to let go of the idea of finding a partner to do life with. That's not the challenge. Our challenge is doing life with our partner with God at the center. And here's, I want, to, I want you to listen to this next piece. 
The truth is, we are matchless. No one on this earth will complete us. There is no one on this earth who will make you whole. That's why we are invited into relationship with our maker and we bring that to each other. So that's myth number two, that you gotta find the right person. So myth number three, a good marriage relationship or just a good relationship should be easy. Do you know that when we took our vows, if you just took a set of traditional vows, I know you didn't say exactly say all those words, but if you just took traditional vows, you would say that we committed, right, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health until death do us part. That's generally speaking, that's the big idea. Do you know, I didn't think about this when I got married for sure, but the fact is every one of those phrases presupposes pain. Every one of them, for better, for worse, in, in health or sickness. Right? I mean, every one of them, there's this presupposition of pain. Of course, when I got married, at 23 years old, I, I, I didn't see any of that side of the equation. I only looked at all the good stuff, all the stuff I was all excited about, all the stuff that I thought would make us an exception to those rules. And so I, man, I'm telling you, I, was, I fell prey to all these myths, man. I'm telling you, I thought I had the right one for sure, and I thought for sure our dating was so much fun, man. We, and we both came from intact families. We had all the quote-unquote boxes checked, and this is going to be easy. Well, it only took about six months for that myth to get debunked, <laughs> if that long. So Philippians 2, 3, and 4 has always been one of my just personal passages that God has used a lot in my own heart. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself or more significant than yourself. Let each one of you not only look at his own interest, but also the interest of others. The very first phrase in that thing says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. That immediately changes the definition of a relationship. Right? I mean, instantaneously, it changes the definition of a relationship. And it, it immediately identifies why they can't always be easy. They can't. So any two people who enter marriage are broken. We are broken people. I was broken. So we don't have a marriage relationship problem. You have two people who brought their struggles to the relationship. You, you bring the thing. Here's the thing I learned about marriage. But it took me a while of hurt is I realized what I brought to marriage was me. And I brought all my, my unmarried immaturities, all my unmarried insecurities, all of the things, all the places I was broken, I just carried in with me. And I was so unaware of that until it began to, to cause pain in our relationship. And of course, it was really hard for me to see what the, the, the problems in the marriage was what I brought in, it was Anne's fault. It's the way she's talking to me that makes me angry. 
I mean, it, it took me a long time to begin to see that the real core was what I brought in. Now listen, I, I want to make a, just a quick little sidebar here. There are toxic relationships in the world. And you can be in a relationship with a person no matter what you do or what you don't do. You, you've got to draw boundaries and you may not be able to stay there. I, I just, you know, the purpose of my message this morning isn't to take those things necessarily apart. I just want you to know that I know that's true, that that's real. And so I'm, I'm talking, I'm pushing us towards an ideal this morning, fully realizing that there are things that make it true that relationships can really harm us as well. But, but here, the truth is though, you do bring you with you. And at the center of the brokenness that we bring into marriage, if I had to just put a label on it, I, I'd say that it's selfishness. It's like the primary problem of humanity. I mean, it, it's about me. My happiness, it's about me. My needs, it's about me. My comfort, it's about me. And there isn't one of us in this room who didn't bring that brokenness with us into our marriage. And I think about selfishness, I think about it kind of like gravity. Like no matter how many times I do this, that book is gonna hit the ground no matter how many times I do it, because gravity is relentless. It is always pulling us down. Gravity is always trying to pull us down. And that's what, that's what selfishness is like. The enemy of God wants self to be on the throne of the world, of, the, of our life, right? Gravity is like this pervasive pull. I mean, if you run uphill, it's hard. If you gotta do a pull-up, it's really tough. When you watch a plane go hurtling through the sky, thrusting, thrusting all those powerful engines to keep it near. And if those engines quit, gravity wins. Just like that, gravity wins. So here is the painful secret about selfishness. Whether you're married, dating, living with a roommate, selfishness creates downward spirals in relationships. Partners almost always respond to selfishness in their mate or their friend with their own self-centeredness. Why? Because selfishness by its nature makes you blind to your own sin while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by selfishness in others. It's easy to see your spouse or your friend's selfishness as more problematic than your own. So that means there's going to be conflicts to resolve, courageous honesty to express, repentance to embrace, forgiveness to pursue so that we can learn to love. Not easy, but life-changing. We're going to talk about some more of those things in the next few weeks. So our brokenness and selfishness are constant companions we carry so the command to count others is more significant than ourselves and to not look out for our own interest is a constant work of God in us. You know, as I've thought about this over the years, I've come to realize that almost universally true, 
maybe some exceptions, but almost universally true, before you get married or get into a really serious relationship, there's almost never a time where you really are asked to really love another person. I mean, when you're a teenager, you love your parents for sure, but you know about 90% of the real work in the relationship is going one way. I mean, it is, right? And if you have a roommate in college, you may have been friends for years and you, you love them, but if, if things go a little south, you know, you can draw a different boundary, get a new roommate, you, you can change. But all of a sudden, one day, we step into this thing called a marriage relationship and all of a sudden, we are asked to put another person's needs ahead of our own as a way of life as a way of thinking about being in relationship with another person. And I don't know about you, but when I got married, I, I, I couldn't have articulated it then, but I look back and I understand that before that, I simply never had to really love another person. Not really. And it was a shock to my system. It was. So just never fall prey to the myth that good relationships are going to be easy. They aren't going to be easy, but they really can be life-changing because the gospel was designed to impact the way we relate to one another inside marriage and outside of marriage. The thing that changes after you're married is that you put this thing called a covenant around that friendship commitment. So this morning, I just wonder if you find yourself struggling with any of those three myths. You know, another word for myth in this case, you, you could even change the word to lie. Because I think when it comes to relationships, the enemy of God would, would really love us just to use the word myth. But I think we should use the word lie. Because it's really set out to deceive us that marriage will complete you. Your spouse cannot meet your needs the way that you hope for or think that they should. Marrying the right person is the key to long-lasting marriage. Most likely, it'll cause discontentment and comparison, frustration, and inner wandering of our affections. Myth number three, a good marriage relationship should be easier. A good relationship should be easy. And when we believe that, one of the things that that does is it makes it hard for us to see ourselves in the brokenness. It's much easier to blame someone else for the problem in the relationship than to look at ourselves. So these myths lie to us and they take us down a road that actually can get us lost in the middle of our relationship. So, so what? I, I just want to give you a second here. and These are on your handout as well. So if you've been struggling, if, if any of those myths, if you can identify in your heart, you know, I think I believe that. And I think even while I'm married, I go in and out of that stuff. I, I think I've got the wrong person. Oh, that's not the way to think. You know, we, we come in and out of those things. So here's what we can do if we are struggling or we're, we've been caught in the web of those lies. The first thing there, you can, 
blame the person that is disappointing you and just move on. That's what those lies do to us. They, do, they prevent us from seeing the truth so we can blame the person. Or some of us are prone to blame ourselves, concluding you've become a failure. So we might take the other tack and we go, I'm just terrible at this. I, I, you know, this is all my fault. And you can't have a, a good, honest conversation. And so you, you sort of fall on the sword of the relational world. You can blame the circumstances of your life and give up on the idea of healthy relationships. And here's a really hard thing, because circumstances sometimes are just amazingly difficult. As I say this, please hear, I understand. Uh, you know, 42 years of marriage and four daughters, it's not, you wonder, everything up here is white. I mean, I, I understand the pains of circumstances of life. The enemy loves to conquer and divide your most meaningful relationships when circumstances are painful and we are most vulnerable. And the last one, number four, you can reorient your whole heart towards your relationship with God. And that's gonna begin first by rejecting the lies that even if we don't dwell on them, but they have a presence and they can appear at moments in our relational world, in our marriage. And I, this quote from C.S. Lewis right here, this quote is sort of a launching quote for next week, honestly. If I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, something supernatural and eternal. And all, what I want to say about that is that's C.S. Lewis's way again of saying that we were made for something bigger. We're made for something bigger than just our relationships. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we get done with this series, and, and really even next week, I, I, I have been praying for weeks that you would come out of this with your heart reoriented to the gift of relationship and the gift of marriage. God gave them to us to reshape us, to make us like himself, to teach us how to love, to call us to something bigger than ourselves. So next week, we're gonna answer the question that comes from a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. So what if marriage is more about your holiness than your happiness? That's a, that question acts like those two things are uh, actually like binary choices or separate from each other. But it's a great question to ask because what I think it will help us do is redefine what our happiness is in our relationships.